Welcome back to Gale Force Wins Season 3. NLCA Build 2023, May 2nd to 3rd, from the NLCA Center of Ecovation, Newfoundland's largest commercial industrial construction trade expo, showcasing the latest equipment advances and newest technology applications. Well, welcome to another edition of Gale Force Winds, and I got to tell you, we're in a pretty special place today, talking to a pretty special fellow, Jerry. Uh, I'm Alan Dale, and with me as always, my good buddy, Jerry Carew from the East End of St. John's. Jerry, why don't you kick us off with the weather report? Well, I think that's appropriate, seeing that we're here in the Turks and Caicos. It's approximately uh, 32 degrees here, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The wind, Peter, would be from what direction, would you say? Uh, probably southeast. Southeast, yeah. And I can tell you this, that it's been sunshine, sunshine, and more sunshine since we've been here. So uh, one thing I'm really excited about, though, Alan, is to be able to be on a golf course. It's been a passion of mine since I was a very young man. Uh, do I play very well? Not really, but I'm okay with that. It's just beautiful to be out on the course and be in part of nature. Another thing that I'm very interested in is people that made their living on a golf course. And I know for a fact we're sitting with someone that has done that and uh, we're going to let you kick that off. Hey. 100%. It's certainly uh, a real pleasure for me to be here as well, to kind of hone my handicap as well. So that's great, Peter. So without further ado, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself? Well, sure. Peter Boyce, uh, PGA of Canada golf professional since 1965. Uh, I grew up in London, Ontario, and that's where I started my career. And. Uh, it's been uh, a great life ever since. Peter, London, Ontario, was golf always a part of your life? How did you got, How did you grow up there in London? Well, at a young age of seven, I believe, we moved outside the city to the first subdivision that London had called Oakley Bakers, which happened to be uh, approximately three blocks from Thames Valley Golf Club, where I migrated to. My father was a golfer when he was young and uh, he took me the first time and I started playing as a junior player there and uh, evolved into a club cleaner and uh, then an assistant pro and uh, went from there. Junior player to a club, what was it? Club cleaner. What's a club cleaner? I didn't even... Yeah, that's uh, members bring their clubs in, you clean their clubs and put them away. So. Uh, yeah, so a young guy, you're hanging around the golf course. Any brothers, sisters in the golf? I have one sister who doesn't play golf at all. Yeah. So not her interest. And uh, my father passed away when I was quite young. I think I was uh, 14. So I was kind of left on my own as far as the golf game. And uh, a uh, golf professional there at the club uh, basically became a second father to me. And that's how I got in the business. Is that right? Yeah. Do you remember his name? Sure do. Can't forget it, John Moffat Sr. Yeah. was his name, and he was the pro there, and his son, John Jr., and I became uh, assistant pros under his tutelage, and uh, we developed under him for, well, for me, a five-year period before I moved on. And uh, so young Johnny and I were friends, and I mean, our kids grew up together and knew each other, so the Moffat family was very important to me. Wow, and what was golf like back then for you? What were the courses like? And I mean, here we are today, this is something spectacular. Tell me about what right. it was like back then. Well, Thames Valley was a typical municipal golf club owned by the, by the city. So conditions were, uh, this year, that right now would probably be marginal, but back then they were 
pretty good to us. Yeah. The the private clubs in the area, like Sunningdale and the London Hunt Club, which hosted the Canadian Open in 1970, were of course one step above. They had a much bigger budget and so on. But I mean, golf was golf. It didn't matter. We played as juniors, so we would go to different golf clubs around the area, just like the kids do now. And uh, that's how I kind of got to know the game, how to play it, uh, how to approach it. And uh, to my mother's chagrin, started to love it more than school. <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> well, when I was uh, finishing my last year of, of uh, high school, my mother said, well, now it's time for you to go to uh, university. And I said, no, Mom, I want, I want to become a golf pro. And now is the time that I, I have to spend five years as an apprentice. And uh, I think my education is more than sufficient to do what I want to do. And uh, even I went through some bribes as far as to stay in school and go on. And uh, I broke away and went on my own. Is that right? Yeah. I'd always stayed in London there? Or? London area, right, for five years, uh, passing the uh, courses during the PGA apprenticeship. And then when I became eligible to become a Class A head pro, I then applied at a little town called Strathroy, about 20 miles west of London, and I moved on to there. What was it called? Stra Strathroy. Strathroy. Yeah, S-T-R-A-T-H-R-O-Y. Okay. Yeah. Strathroy. And they had a club there, and as you were working up there. Small club there. I became the uh, head professional uh, with a retainer of $3,100 a year. Plus, I had the pro shop. I thought it was in seventh heaven. It was a nine-hole golf course at the time. Yeah. And during my period there, the, the club grew and bought some land, and we uh, expanded to 18 holes while I was there. So I got a chance to go through construction and uh, some of the construction procedures and learn from that as well. And uh, a fellow who was uh, very prominent in the London Toronto area as far as golf architecture, Rennie Mueller, uh, designed many courses in the area, uh, was also from Strathroy, so I got to know Randy quite well and he helped me uh, in the, you know, down the road. It must have been pretty amazing at a young age and early in your career to be part of designing a golf course and adding another uh, nine holes on. That must be quite interesting. It, it was. I, I learned a lot and during that eight year period I went from being just a seasonal golf professional and then working in, in London in a menswear shop, which I also learned a lot about marketing. And back then, there was a lot of clothing involved in, in, in the pro shop and so on. Uh, and uh, then became a ice maker. Had, they had four sheets of curling, so I, I, I learned that. So I became the head ice maker and then general manager. So in the end, I was pro general manager ice maker. So. I, <laughs> I learned it all at Strathroy, what to do. Is that right? Peter, that's fascinating. Yeah, we'll make a note there that uh, Brad Guju and his team from uh, Newfoundland won the Briar again last night. I, I saw it. I watched it. Yeah, it's great for him to win. I think it's the fifth time. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Is that a record? Or? I believe it is. Yeah. We were quite close to curling. I was connected with the curling when I moved on to Sarnia. Yeah. And my boys were the members of uh, an Ontario team. I'm trying to think of probably about 1990 one or two, we, just before we moved here, uh, they won the Ontario Junior Boys Championship and we went to the Canadians back in Leduc, Alberta. So we were very much into competitive curling. 
Peter, uh, I've got a couple of questions related to what you said. So you said you had the pro shop. That means you had to run that as a business. Isn't that what that means? Correct, correct. Tell us a little bit about that and the learnings because is there is there training in that or did you just learn as you went? Well, my boss previously was Mr. Mop, who I talked about. He owned his own pro shop and most of the professionals did back then. And uh, so it became a... a kind of a learning marketing and uh, what kind of uh, product suited your customers, what pricing and all that, and that's just something we learned. And also the PGA offered some courses back then on just small things like accounting and knowing where the money is and day-to-day and, uh, -day operations of not just being a golf pro but running a business. It's interesting to me, Alan, that you know you fell in love with the game of golf but the business side of things doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. So did you embrace it? You obviously didn't fight it, but you know, the game of golf and hitting that little white ball as close to the hole as possible is your passion. Tell us a little bit about the business side and how I guess it grew into a passion. Well, I think the biggest thing about being a head golf professional is number one, the rapport with the membership and the people who play there. And all I tried to do at any point in time was have the people like me and support me and I've never had an issue with, with that. I've been able to deal with the people fairly and uh, honestly and uh, it paid off for me. Yeah. The, uh, uh, so how long were you in the Strathroy area and then where was next for you? Well, it's 1970 through 78. Okay. And then in 78, the spring of 78, I moved on to the Sarnia Golf and Curling Club which was a huge step for me. That went, went to a private golf club uh, that had the feeling of Strathroy because it was the only private club in, in Sarnia. And we could have the hourly worker who, who worked you know, uh, in the plants as a member, but also the CEO of Imperial Oil, for example. Right. Yeah. So we, we had a big mixture of membership so it felt very homey to me which is exactly what Strathroy did. Yeah. How long were you in Sarnia area? Sarnia I was from uh, 78 through 92 just before I moved moved down here. So oh wow. I, uh, I always tell everybody I, I think it must have been a midlife crisis because I left a really good club job which I could have stayed I'm sure until I retired. I mean, right. I, I love the members and the members love me and we just got along, but I thought it was time for a change and something new, and so away I went to an island that nobody had heard about, to a <laughs> so, golf club that nobody had heard about. So you had a finely tuned machine and you thought maybe it's time to leave that one. <laughs> I, I second guessed every now and then, but it turned out just fine. <laughs> yeah, so tell me about that. So you, you make the move from Sarnia down to the, the Turks and Caicos. and. Uh, that was in 92? 92, yeah. Now, in Turks and Caicos must have been much different in 92. Certainly, this club would have been much different in 92. Tell us about that. Well, the island was really small as far as infrastructure. Uh, the main road, which now is a four-lane highway, Leeward Highway, was a two-lane road basically made out of pieces of asphalt and potholes. I mean, you couldn't go very fast down that road. Right. And uh, I mean, there was very little here. Uh, there was 
one club med, uh, an ocean club uh, resort across the road from here, and and uh, then Grace Bay Club, way down the beach, down by Ports of Call, and then a uh, fairly new hotel, which I think was built and called the Ramada, <coughs> sorry, Ramada Turquoise Reef, and that was basically it. Wow. So uh, we we didn't have a lot of hotel infrastructure to even deal with. Uh, Club Med was a fairly big supporter back then, but Club, Club Meders aren't really golfers, so that was that was a bit of an issue. But right. uh, you know, we got through that, uh, and we had the hotel and the Ramada, and that became kind of our big source of, of, of golf, other than the members. We right. had quite a few members, even in the early days. Is that right? Not much else to do here, so. Right. And uh, I think also this was the only bar on the West End East end of the island, so that kind of brought them out too. Tell me about the the state of the course and, and the clubhouse and everything mm -hmm. back in the day. Barren was it? Would have been the, the uh, course description to start with. Right. It was green strips with uh, Washingtonian trees that now must be 50, 60 feet high, and they were 12, 14 feet high max. So you couldn't see the green because the heads of the the palm trees were still too low if you were standing around the clubhouse. So, uh, and white. We've sold not, almost all white, not, no white balls, yellow balls and orange balls because it, it, where everything was cleared, it, the sand was so white that you, it was glary, you couldn't see the ball. Right. <laughs> and, and we could see everywhere. You could see the fourth tee from here, which now it's impossible to see it. Back then it was quite quite barren and uh, just keep getting better. And that, wouldn't, that wouldn't have bothered me because I never go in the sand. So. <laughs> <laughs> and the clubhouse back then? The clubhouse, uh, we opened uh, in November and I worked out of a little construction trailer and then February, I think the fifth or sixth, is when we opened the clubhouse. Okay, wow. So back then I, I owned the bar, I owned the pro shop and uh, we did a profit sharing with the with the owners of the club. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Wow. So you said you had members back then, quite a few members. Yes. Any members still here today? Yes. From those days? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Founding members. Uh, I'm trying to, uh, I know uh, Tim and Emer O'Sullivan are were there here. Uh, Hugh and Mary uh, O'Neill and Colette Cody. I think that's about and J.P. Srinar, who's been our senior club champion for many years. JP's been a fixture uh, and it's a good friend of mine, so I can't forget him. Right, and so uh, back in the day, did you live right on the course? Yes, there's an apartment down below in the clubhouse and that's where I lived. Is that right? Yeah, nice apartment actually, uh, other than the fact that if anything went wrong, they were knocking on your door. <laughs> yeah, I was, that's the first thing I was thinking about. You never got away from it, seven yeah, days yeah, a week. It was nice, but it was pretty close. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. Canada, you'd get a break for the winter, but here it's yes, it's yeah, it's the same. 364 yeah. days a year, I hear. Yeah. Other, Christmas Day, uh, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you made the move down. A big transition from Canada, moving down here. Was that hard? On, we, uh, did you bring the family and everything? Did everybody come? Yes. Uh, back then, my my wife and uh, my uh, my youngest son Matthew came. My oldest son Jason stayed. He was in the University of Windsor. Okay. But Matthew was in grade 12, so 
we brought him down with us uh, to attend school here, but back then the school system wasn't quite on par with what the Canadian system was, so right. we decided to uh, pull him out of school here, and so he, he was our first bag boy and bag and club cleaner. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Is he still golfing? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah Is he a pro? No, no. Matthew works for Cisco Canada, Cisco oh, Foods. Right. Yeah. So he's uh, up in the management end of it. Lives in Dorchester, Ontario, and uh, yeah, he still plays. Yeah. The older boy play? The older boy play, and is actually uh, a green superintendent at uh, uh, a golf club in Gananoque. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I got a question, Peter, around the love of the game. Um, so you're so busy. You're living on the course. You don't get to play very often, I guess, do you, when you're a club professional? I would say the, I would probably average one and a half rounds a week, maybe two, depending on, you know, the time of year and so on. Here, yeah. um, it was a family thing here, and we had some employees, so I could kind of get out a little bit with the members here. Back in Sarnia, it was, um, I would say, maybe two rounds a week. Mm -hmm. The rest of the time is, is busy. You're, yeah. You know, you're 13 employees back then, and yeah. then here I had all the kitchen staff, all the all the staff down below, and so it, it was busy. So when you say one and a half rounds here, did you start around sometimes and then gotta leave? No, See I you would, later. I would say that'd be like uh, five rounds a month or something, like <laughs> that, averaging one and a half rounds. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But it was fun though, just to be around the game, I guess, eh? Well, I love the game. That's, that's why I got into it. You know, the love of the game is why most golf professionals are where they are. They didn't get in in the profession for money, per se. And uh, I was lucky to be in the time period that really was good for golf professionals. Owning your own shop, owning the power cart fleet, things like that, which are all taken away now. And so it's much tougher for the young guys to uh, get anywhere near the income that the, the golf professional did years ago. Right. So you own the golf carts as well? Yes. That's a yes. big outlay of cash for a it was. sole proprietor. It was. Right? Yes, it was. It started off small. The, uh, uh, in Sarnia, the, the uh, prerequisite of hi being hired as pro was that you had to have a minimum of 10 carts. Now that's back in 78, which still was a lot of outlay. Uh, in the beginning, I, I leased carts, and then I expanded, and over the years, I ended up with 40 when I left, and now I think Sarnia has 60 or What's, more. Uh, what was the average price of a golf cart back those days? I'm going to say around four to five thousand. Wow, four to five thousand, and you had forty of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a big outlay, but uh, you know, it it was a big income too once you got past that stage, and uh, and a big part of any professional's income. And then, of course, the, the clubs got uh, a little more uh, involved in everything, and and take over the cart program and then the pro would be paid a percentage, mm -hmm. which worked out quite well too, you know, because they still your staff looked after everything. And, so you know, club rentals, would you have to buy the clubs in as well? That was all yours too, I suppose, was it? No club rentals in Sarnia because it was private, but here, oh. here we had 
definitely had club rentals. Not nearly to the point where we are now. No. But back then, I think we had 15 sets of rentals. And now we have 60 plus. Yeah, and I played with them a couple of days ago. Pretty they nice. Have, they oh, are yeah. beautiful clubs. Brand new Titleist. Yeah. yeah. They are, it's uh, just totally changed the, you know, in the beginning, rentals were a low, mid, middle range golf club. Just something for the golfer to have. Right. But then they started bringing in a few premium sets to see whether they would rent or twice the price or whatever it was. And they found out everybody was going for the premium. So said, what, what are we doing with the low end? So just kept building it up, and getting better clubs. And, and now a lot of people don't want to travel with their bag clubs, so they'll just come and rent. Right. Sorry for geeking out on this, but uh, clubs get a lot of wear and tear, scratches and all that. So what's the normal practice in the industry for replacement of those types of clubs? The rental clubs, uh, well, you have to have backups uh, and backup shafts. I just reshafted two today. That, that, you know, irons that were broken on the golf course. We were, we were told broken in the course of play, but you would hope. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of reshafting and a lot of backup, three or four sets just to back up. So if a wedge goes missing, you've got you've got replacements. So. Peter, uh, I'm proud to say I've never broken a club, but I do know for a fact that they don't float. <laughs> that's a good line, Peter. So that's a, a beautiful lead up to kind of your journey to where you are today. So tell us about what you're doing in the moment. We're right here at the, the very course that you kind of created. And so what do you do here for the course? Well, this is place is dear to my heart because I, I saw it when it was virtually nothing and I saw it develop into what it is today. Uh, I just uh, I guess it's the fact that uh, Dave grew up under under me and we've been friends for life and uh, so good to see uh, him succeed here and uh, he given me the chance to come back for a couple months every year and help him during the busy season and that that works out great for me I get back back to see my friends and play a little golf with the members and open the golf club every day at 5.30. So, uh, by the way, I beat Dave to the course this morning. I was the first one here. Me and the cat open up the cart barn most days. So, yeah, so it's, it's just been uh, dear to my heart. And, uh, it's something that I uh, thoroughly enjoy doing and seeing everybody and just revisiting, I guess. Right, so when you're not here on the course and here in the Turks and Caicos, where does life find you? Well, we have kind of a triangle. We, we have a, I would describe it as a hobby farm at home. Uh, my wife Brenda was an egg farmer for oh. many years and uh, I uh, helped her when she was, before she was retired. On, and I always say uh, it's the only golf professional in the world that gathered 10,000 eggs on Christmas Day. <laughs> so I, that's my claim to fame. But since she retired, we, we have our own separate farm of 36 acres, uh, four horses, about 22 sheep, which now with the lambs there's going to be 40 sheep, and uh, a dog. Okay. Yeah. And where's that? That's in. That's, in, that's just outside of Strathroy, where, where I started the whole wow. thing. 
Yeah. And you're, you have your own driving range. I have my own driving range, which is on the other farm. Uh, it's about a 30-acre <coughs> property. We have 12 practice holes, and uh, yardage is about a thousand yards. So 12, 12 <coughs> practice holes. What does that mean? I've never heard the term. <coughs> well, it's kind of like a, a not pitch and putt golf right. club, but it's very similar. We built greens all the way around the perimeter of the uh, driving range, out of out of the driving range play, and uh, you play six out and six back, and mm -hmm. uh, so people can play it, no charge for kids, and we ha ask the adults that are accompanying the kids to throw a toonie in the box for charity, and along with the golf, the, the driving range itself, so most people come out with their kids and hit a bucket of balls and then take the kids out for six holes or 12 holes. And, so it's been, uh, the last two years have been very interesting building it, getting the greens in shape. It's all, all water. All what? All water, all irrigated. So uh, yeah, so it's, it's been fun to do. So they all par threes or do you have par yes. four? Yeah, par threes. One par four, which is really not a par four, but for the average golfer, it's 285 yards. So it, it's a really long par three. Yeah. But, but for the kids, of course, it's a par four. Right. So for that, you, you I guess some people can reach the green. A lot of people would, you have a landing area then almost like a fairway for that hole, do you? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. They're all separate little fairways, all cut and with rough around the outside to define, define it. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite, it's been really fun and uh, learned a lot about irrigation and how to put pipe in and valves and, wow. you know, another little part of the uh, whole process. Yeah. And you do that for the kids to learn golf? Yeah. 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 I used to do a lot of junior golf camps before COVID, and uh, we'd have uh, a three-day golf camp for kids every week for like six weeks during the summer. I don't do that now. I'm, I'm, I've always described myself as semi-retired from doing all the teaching. I teach one day a week there now. Mm -hmm. The rest of the time I'm there uh, cutting grass or, you know, looking after the business side of it I was uh, trying to explain to Alan that I don't know if all golfers are like this but if I'm not on the golf course I want to be sitting looking at my lawn my lawn is meticulous I don't have as much to mow as you do but a cutting grass is pleasurable for me yes yes it is for me too uh, I uh, I enjoy it we've, uh, you know, we've got a fairway more we've got a rough more we've got greens more so we're just like a basically a tiny golf course. Well, I've got my 15-year-old. He mows it on angles, and it's perfect. Yeah. My 19-year-old couldn't care less. In fact, he'll gouge into it. And I don't even ask him anymore. I think that's his intention, because he doesn't want to do it. Now, Peter, that's two parts of the triangle. What's the third part? Uh, the third part is Arizona. Oh, well. Uh, we've uh, had a home in Arizona. We built it in 19... Let me think now. 97. Okay. And uh, so we've been spending more time there than we used to. Uh, we go down the middle of uh, November after visiting here for two weeks. And then we're there basically right through till the 1st of February. Wow. And I uh, have my golfing buddies there. There's where I play golf. Is that right? Uh, I play uh, usually three to four times a week there. One day a week with the golf professionals there and the rest with my golfing buddies. It's a group of about 30 guys that get together about three days a week. And uh, so that's, that's kind of fun, it's different, and uh, it's warm. 
and uh, Canada's cold. Yeah. So, so the Turks in the Arizona kind of, for some reason, seem to be during the winter. Yeah, you see, you seem to have it fairly balanced. <laughs> yeah, it's worked out very well. And, uh, you know, we're we're at the retirement end, so we've, we've decided to do what we want to do. Yeah. I'm uh, Alan. We're talking to someone who's enjoying a very lengthy career. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't get into a few golf tips. What, if you were to summarize, and this I'm sure you probably asked, there's lots of people trying to figure out the game, but if you were to summarize, someone who shoots, say, between 85 and 95 or 85 and 100, what, what, what are a couple of, couple of points that you would say are musts? Short game, short game, short game. Very few golfers practice the short game. They may go on the putting green and hit a few putts before they play. Yeah. They very seldom do they take balls and, and go to the chipping area and work on the pitching and the chipping and the 100 yards and in, that's the game. Everybody can hit it, but if you want to score and have more fun, you got to practice the short game. And that, that's, uh, that is by far the number one. It's funny, I, I read uh, Harvey Penick's Little Red Book, yes. and I think he says start at the pin and work out. I keep telling that my young fellow's a pretty good little golfer, but uh, go to the range, hit the ball 220 yards. Oh, there's no time to go putting now. We gotta go home for supper. Exactly, exactly. That that would describe the average visitor to the driving range. Yeah. Is, even when people come for a lesson, they pull the driver out. First club, they pull out. I said, no, 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 put that away. Yeah. We're gonna go. We're gonna start with wedges, and then we're gonna work our way up to the driver. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that way. But that's just the spirit of the golfer the, to get the pleasure out of hitting the ball a long way. <laughs> Not so far as being straight, but they like that long way. Peter, you must have some great golfing stories to tell. Uh, could you, could you, and it maybe put you on the spot here, but could you tell us about the best game you ever played? Wow. I would say the best game I ever played. I, I would be what you would describe as a average club pro who, who can shoot par or just over par most days. So a game good enough to show the members that you know the game, but not a competitive golfer that would, for example, win a Canadian championship or whatever. So uh, the best round of golf I ever played probably would have been two years ago when I uh, bettered my age by five shots, which which was huge, you know, so I was uh, 75, so I shot 70, so two under par. So that was, that was really, for me, because now I'm playing more golf, you know, when you're working, you don't play, right. don't play the golf. Yeah. So, so that was good. Um, the, the game has uh, taken me all over the world. I've been to 18 different countries playing golf. So that, that's been another benefit of being a golf professional. Wow. It's interesting. Uh, you've started with one heck of an answer <laughs> and finished it with probably even a better one. It has nothing to do with the score. Yeah, exactly right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't, yeah. Well, where was the most interesting place you played, Emma? 
of those places. I would, they're, they're all so good. I, I've taken golf groups all around the world. And, and some of the members from here were part of it. Uh, we all kind of have our favorite places. Uh, from an overall experience of playing golf, I've been to Thailand three times. And that probably, if I could only go back somewhere, that would probably be where I would go. Really? For the golf experience. For uh, the uh, wow factor and whatever, I would say uh, New Zealand. There's a place there called Cape Kidnappers, which is <laughs> an old uh, sheep station up in the mountains. And they basically took all those pastures and turned them into fairways and you've got five, six hundred foot drops to the sea and a spectacular view. It's just unbelievable golf course. Only allow 36 players a day that are that are, that are non-members and the, the rumor is that the road to get in was like, like this. They spent as much money on the road to get into the golf course as they did on the golf course itself. So that was a, a neat place to go. And then South Africa was incredible. Uh, we played a golf club uh, there uh, called Leopard Creek. Bernie Ells is a member there and a, a, has a home on the course. And there again, there was only like 32 or 36 players allowed a day that weren't members. And we got lucky to get on it. We had, I think, a group of uh, 16. And we played. and. Uh, the girls were playing the ninth hole and they heard this clump, clump, clump behind them and there were two giraffes coming down the 18th fairway. They somehow got onto the golf course and came down to the pond and got a drink of water. So it was really, I mean, there were hippos on the golf course, and you name it. Imagine keeping those greens under control. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. Mr. Giraffe, could you replace your divot, please? <laughs> well, believe it or not, we as the guys, we were ahead of the girls, so we didn't actually see them. We got the pictures afterwards, but we saw these great big kind of holes all the way down the fairway where they're that heavy that they left these tracks all the way down. Peter, you must have golfed with some pretty interesting people over the years. Did any of those jump out for you? Well, Canadian legend, Mo Norman. Uh, Seriously, you golfed with him? Yes, yes, and, and Mo was a, I would describe him as not a, uh, a friend who we saw each other all the time, but we liked each other all the time. He played in my Pro-Am in Sarnia for four or five years. And Mo is regarded worldwide as being probably the best striker of the ball ever. He, he put on clinics and hit, hit shots were incredible. You would not believe what you were seeing. It, it was that good. Did he start out as like a kid and just keep hitting balls every day? He must have. Yes. He developed a technique whereby the club came through the ball on a, on a straight line and nobody else has been able to do it. So he, he would take the club back but bring it through that hitting zone so straight the ball would hardly curve at all at any time unless he wanted it to. And But nobody else has been able to duplicate that. He, he just had that certain move that he could make and uh, they studied it, they called it the one plane swing and whatever, but Mo was uh, the best striker of the ball I've ever played with. Amazing. Yeah. Peter, did you know there's a movie being made about him? 
Yes, yeah. I, heard, I heard that. Well, just a little tidbit that um, the person with the rights to that movie is actually a Newfoundlander. His name is Dave Carver. Um, he's a guy who used to produce a lot of rock concerts around All right. Canada. But yeah, he's fell in love with uh, that individual and uh, has the rights to it. Wow. Yeah, I hear there's something in the works. So I hope it goes. It would be great to see. Uh, there's lots of videos out there of Mo, and, and Mo is a unique, eccentric yeah. personality. But he uh, he was just a, a great guy. I mean, it, the number of clinics that Mo had put on for free, no charge, was amazing. Wow. Yeah. Who else you got in the mix here? I feel like if we can dig a little deeper, there's all kinds of stories in here. I never, never played with him, but uh, Mike Weir also was a club cleaner for me when he was in high school. He was a left-hander and played in our junior tournaments and so on. And who would have thought that he would have gone on to win the Masters and eight PGA uh, tournaments? Uh, that was just an incredible thing for our, our area. I agree, and, and uh, you were probably watching. To watch him sink that putt to win the Masters? Yeah. I can barely sink a putt like that with nothing at stake. I mean, his putt was what, about six feet maybe? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. He won that tournament with the putter in the wedge. Short game. Short game, right? yeah. Not the long well, I remember, you're right. And remember, it was a very rainy um, couple of days. Yes. And they always talk about people with length. Well, he'd hit the ball, and he wasn't the longest, was he? No. And it no. would plug, yeah, I think the lift clean in place even, I believe. Might have been, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, uh, I mean, it was just uh, such a, an incredible thing for not only him, uh, Canada. Yeah. And now he's going to be the captain of the international team for the uh, President's Cup. So he's had a, a great career and uh, a win on the senior tour, which is good again. So it's uh, Peter, um, so <laughs> what's over the horizon for you? You've got you've described this triangle to us. What's uh, what's the future look like for you now? Well, I, mm. I'm just continuing to go on and do what I'm doing. Um, as as they said in the movie, don't let the old man in. So uh, why 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 stop doing what you love to do? Right. So I, I'm just going to continue until. Uh, I can't. I've got a hip replacement on the on the books for some time in the next two years, whenever it comes due. <coughs> so, but just uh, keep on going. Wow, and it's uh, it's great to see you down there in action. You know, Jerry and I had the pleasure to be here uh, when uh, one of the great Canadian hockey players was coming through uh, just a few days ago, and here you are greeting them and putting them out on the out on the course and. Little do they know the history that you've got with the club and history you've got with golf. It's uh, it's spectacular. It's, yeah, it's been it's been great. And yet, dealing with people like that famous Canadian hockey player, it was nice that he looked me up, came over to the cart barn to say thanks and to say goodbye. Something that a lot of celebrities would never do. But. Right, Peter. Uh, when it comes to this golf course and all of our viewers in Canada, the United States, and around the world. What would you tell them as golfers about this course in terms of why they should play it? How would you summarize that? Well, I would say it's unique. It's uh, a different course than most Caribbean golf courses. It's just cut out of limestone rock and, and, uh, and bush. 
uh, with inland waterways now, which at one time were just low collection areas that were kind of like muddy swamps. So when the course was constructed, they were all excavated and built into water hazards. And uh, I, the golf course is a uh, not long, but with the wind factor here, that can make a big difference as far as length. But it's a fun golf course to play, and all I can say is the, the conditions are superb now. Our superintendent, Tim Mack, uh, has done a great job. The new grass past Fallon has just transformed it into a really, really well-conditioned golf course. I would agree with you. I played one round so far. I'm hoping yeah. to get out again. I did struggle. Um, I wasn't in the fairway, so I was off on the rough a little bit. And I did find the grass totally different than anything I've ever experienced because the ball kind of sat like a cushion on top of the grass. Yes. And the first two holes, I couldn't figure out how to hit it because the club was going under the ball. And I'm like, but I will say for me, the most beautiful thing is the greens. The greens are the most beautiful and I played in Vegas and a few other places around the world they're just something else here they they are they are really running well there and uh, it's just um, a transformation from Bermuda grass to this grass which is salt tolerant which allows us to water with a more salty water base than we used to it used to be pretty much straight tap water and now we can augment it with some salt water so it's uh, it's made the greens just perfect. They are really, really perfect. Well, they are. In hole number one, I uh, putted from about five feet, and I think I had another 11 coming back. I was gobsmacked at how beautiful it was. So, anyway, um, it's it, it is. It's uh, you really don't have to stroke it very hard for it to go a long way. No, it, the ball gets momentum and it just keeps going. Yeah. 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 There are a few pin placements that I found interesting, though uh, a little nasty. <laughs> well, we have we have a new addition to our green staff, Kirk Stewart, who yeah. is a golfer. And Kirk has uh, uh, put his golfing expertise into pin placements as well. So if there are any tough ones, we know we know who to find. Know who to find. Well, on 18 yesterday, he had it. If you're looking at the green over to the right, and I was looking. Oh my lord, like it drops off. So if you miss that at all, it's yeah, gone. Yeah, the way the pin is gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Peter, uh, wonderful conversation. We often ask our guests at, on uh, Gale Force Winds, uh, people like yourself who've had a wonderful journey through life and clearly you're still enjoying it. I can tell by the smirk on your face that <laughs> you're in the right place right now. What would a piece of advice be to the audience? Uh, I would say treat everybody the way you would want to be treated. And if you do that, you'll be successful. And uh, that's basically all I can say. I uh, never tried to dislike anybody and uh, just get along with people and uh, it'll reward you. That's fantastic. Good advice. Well, I'm going to say this to you, Peter. Um, I've golfed since I was 14, I'm 56 now. For me, a golf course is important, greens, all that, but the people, if I feel comfortable with the people around me, and here, I feel welcome. I feel that the staff, many of which are still here that you hired, yes. they just made me feel part of the, of the, of the course, and, and I, I gotta tell you that that's your legacy, and it, 
You should be proud of yourself. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm proud of it. Yeah. Another wonderful conversation on Gale Force Winds, and what a place we find ourselves in here today at the beautiful Royal Turks and Caicos Golf Course on the Turks and Caicos Island. Peter, an absolute pleasure to be in conversation with you. And I can tell you this, I'd like to, to leave the podcast with my own piece of advice, and the world needs more Peter Boyce. Thanks, Peter. Well, thank you very much. Proud well done, mate. Thank you. Well, we're in the center of the um, golf club in the clubhouse and such. And um, it's a small clubhouse, but it's extremely comfortable and welcoming. What's up with the ceiling here, man? This is pretty unusual. Yeah, so um, what we've got is a little over 260 flags that were presented to us for placement in the clubhouse. Um, and it all began in 1993, in January of 1993, I brought down the very first two flags. Um, and Peter Boyce, the director of golf, and myself, uh, we didn't know what we were going to do with them. And ultimately, Peter decided he would put them up over top of the bar. So there was two lonely flags there. And eventually that grew with members and such to eight or 10 or 12 flags. And then it started to blossom. As uh, resort guests would visit, they ask about the flags and they, they would also per ask if they could provide their flag from their home club or their favorite golf course. Any one of them that jumps out amongst the rest? Uh, yeah, so many stories behind them. Um, so it's hard, it's really hard to say. One of them, um, number 19 here, Mules, um, that was quite a gift that was given to me. Um, and um, amazing story behind that one. And there's all kinds of others up here that mean a lot to us, um, but none, none more than most. Dave, you must look up there and every one of them will bring back some sort of a memory. Well, the memories are there. Certainly um, how to get them up top there as well is a bit of a challenge now that it's so popular. So we try to do it once a year with scaffolding and such and add to it and uh, correct a few of them and such. PG of Canada Class A golf professional Ashley Gravitt with your chipping setup. A lot of times golfers get really nervous before they start to chip because they're worried they're going to skull it over the green. So the first thing I want you to do is just take a breath. 
you've got this, okay? So our setup is, you want your feet to be a lot closer than your normal shot. So I like to teach it as two club heads apart. So that way you're able to keep your weight on your front foot. So if you're a right-handed golfer, that's your left foot. We need 80% of our weight off our front foot. Your golf ball, you're gonna put slightly forward in your stance. Because we're using either a sand wedge or a lob wedge for this chip shot, we wanna get the ball up and land as soft as possible. You're gonna be a little bit more upright than you would be with your seven iron, but I want you to grip down on the club. This will help you take the wrist out of it. If your hands are up too high, it's really easy to get wristy and we don't want that. When you're chipping, you want equal stroke on both sides. So however far back you take it, that's how far forward we want to. And you wanna make sure you're accelerating through the ball. So let's go through your checklist real quick. Weight, left foot. If it helps you to lift your right heel off the ground in a flamingo to force you to keep your weight on your front foot, that's perfect. You're gonna grip down on it while still standing up pretty tall and you're gonna do an equal stroke on both sides. Last thing is to brush the grass. And there's your chipping setup. Hey guys, Justin Simons here from Royal Turks and Caicos Golf Club here on the 10th tee box. And we're gonna hit a drive and I'm just gonna give a few uh, little tips here and there uh, for our beginning golfers and newer golfers uh, that might struggle with their drives and their tee shots. Um, so typically, uh, as we all know, the dreaded miss is a big fade or a big slice, right? And the correction for that is uh, just getting a proper technique, understanding how you should move through the shot and uh, being able to execute um, without trying to overpower the ball, right? Uh, a lot of those big fades and slices come from being really aggressive with the upper body and cutting across the ball with a club that's moving from outside to in, uh, creating a side spin and off your ball goes to the right-hand side. Uh, so what we'll do here, and the idea I want you to have, very simply, just chase the ball down the line, okay? So you're gonna get into your setup, take the club back to the top of your swing, really get that body through the swing and allow that club to follow down your target line's path, okay? In that, it's going to help cut down on the amount of side spin that you guys are creating uh, on these shots and you'll see your ball start to straighten out a little bit more. If you do want to straighten out your ball even more, please find your closest uh, professional and get a lesson I'm sure they can help out, right? This one will keep simple. Like I said, we're just gonna chase the ball down the line, okay? In this setup, we're gonna keep the ball uh, a little bit more forward in the sense, just inside the left heel. And as I take my club back and take it through, I'm just going to try and have that club follow along that uh, target line for as long as I can. No forced effort or anything like that but just allow momentum to carry my hands and club through the shot, okay? Not trying to uh, manipulate the hands or the club, but just allowing the body to take me through the shot, right? We're thinking about this through the big muscles and not just the arms and hands, okay? And we're just gonna hit a quick shot and see what we get. Slightly left, but good ball. Thank you for tuning in to Gale Force Winds. That's Gale Force Winds, W I N S dot com.